morning, Christ community. If you would, please stay standing for the reading of today's passage from 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for this morning where we can come together to worship you in spirit and truth. We praise you for the opportunity to gather as your church. And we're reminded from the scriptures that all of your words are breathed out and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. So I pray that each of those four things would take place this morning. As we sit under your word, I pray that you would be with Pastor Jeff and encourage us through the words that you have to preach through him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. How you doing? Has anybody mowed their grass for the last time? Anybody want to, willing to admit that? One? How many of you, the last time it's in October for sure? Anybody? Yeah, for me it's November 1st. I don't recommend that. Grass, ground is pretty frozen by then. But uh, hey, for those of you who just moved here, summer's over. <laughs> And things are about to change. So welcome, welcome. We're going to continue our message, God of All Grace. We get that title from chapter 5, actually, which we'll be covering shortly in the upcoming weeks. And today, the title of the message today is To the Spirits in Prison, Christ is Victorious. Christ is Victorious. Now, the text today begins with uh, the suffering servant. So it's kind of goes along the same lines of the book. The whole book sort of started with Jesus as suffering servant, and it ends with Jesus as resurrected victorious king, which is why we sang all those songs. We love singing those songs about Jesus being the resurrected victorious king. And so the, here we, what we have, the trajectory we have in Peter is this. The once submissive son who surrendered himself and submitted to unjust authorities is now appointed in resurrection... And ascension, the ruler over all things, angels, powers, authorities, everything. So for the better part of two chapters, what you and I have been experiencing in this book in 1 Peter has been uh, Peter charging the church of Jesus with the difficult task of submitting to ungodly, sometimes unjust authorities. But here we find the rest of the story. All the authorities in the world, be they just or unjust, have now been subjected to Jesus. That's where this passage is going. And Christ reigns victorious. Christ is exalted high above all nations and their systems. Right? So I want to start with a story. Uh, there is a story about the Battle of Waterloo. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a good story, so I'm going to tell you. Uh, now, even if you're not a history buff, I'm sure you've heard of the Battle of Waterloo. In 1815, the French army, commanded by Napoleon Bonaparte, was repulsed by uh, the English Duke of Wellington, and the Prussian forces commanded by General Gebhard von Blücher. And news was carried first by a ship that sailed. News of the battle, the outcome of the battle, was carried first by a ship that sailed from Europe across the English Channel 
to England's southern coast. And the way they communicated was the news was relayed from the coast by naval signal flags to London. And so when the report was received in London at Winchester Cathedral, the flags began to spell out the outcome of the Battle of Waterloo. And they got the first word up, Wellington. Second word, defeated. And then the fog rolled in. And so they communicated to everyone there that the Battle of Waterloo had been lost. Wellington was defeated. And then, just like that, a heaviness came over, a gloom came over the people there in England. Every neighborhood, everywhere. A national heaviness set in like a shroud. And the following day, the fog lifted and the rest of the message could be seen. Wellington defeated the enemy. Despair was immediately replaced with rejoicing. And Peter is going to take that same lesson and apply it now to believers who are suffering in the fog of persecution in Rome. Believers whose victory in Christ feels obscured by the miasma and the fog of suffering for Christ's name. Now Peter is a tested soldier. Time-worn soldier for Christ. He knows what it's like to experience the confusion of apparent defeat. And he can encourage those believers. And here's what he wants to say in this book. Listen, I know the world right now seems bleak. I know that right now it looks as though darkness is on the rise. Persecution is on our doorstep. At the time of this writing, Nero is the emperor. So persecution is coming. Bad persecution. Suffering for the gospel is in our future. He says, but you need to know the rest of the story. You need to know that through the haze of your worry and your fear and the world's apparent victory over the righteous, you need to know that the banner, the flags read, Christ defeated the powers of hell, of darkness, of death, and sin from that grave on Sunday morning. So you need to know that the message could not be more hopeful. Peter says that our messages could not be more hopeful. The news could not be better. Sin is defeated. The grave is empty. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Now, this is Peter's larger context to this passage that we're going to look at today. We follow the suffering servant who gave his life for all. We follow the man on the tree. We follow the man who suffered and bore our sins and submitted to the authorities and the powers of his time. And we are followers of the way of suffering. Here's how Paul said it. Philippians chapter 3. I bet you this passage is not anyone's life verse. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yeah, I'll take that one. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. I don't like that. Sorry, Paul. I'm American. I don't have to have that part. That's not, that's not for me. The first half, sure. But here's what the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament went you and I to know. There is no victory without a cross. There is no crown without the beam. There is no resurrection without death. I think the resurrection at the end of the world is going to be fantastic. But you've got to die to get there. You have to die to experience it. There's no resurrection apart from death. And so while in this moment we sense the sentence of death, in this moment while we feel the forces and the powers of dark realms set against us, Peter wants to say, Listen to this super weird verse. Here it goes, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered 
once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There, no problem there. The phrase for Christ also links you and I to his sufferings. How so, though? Because Christ suffered once for all for sins. You and I don't suffer once for all for sins. I can't suffer for your sins. I mean, I could, but it would be absolutely meaningless. Hebrews 9, 26 and 27 says this, but now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages. One time. For the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So Christ's suffering was once and for all for sin. So how is our suffering different from Christ in that respect? You and I don't atone for anyone's sin, but how is it the same? How is it similar? It's similar because Christ was punished unjustly. Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, I don't know if you knew this or not, it was illegal. Did you know that? The Sanhedrin broke all kinds of laws, their own laws and Roman laws, in order to try him. It was illegal. And the scripture says he surrendered, he submitted. Did you know that it was illegal to persecute Christians in the first century? It was illegal. Because according to Roman law, you could not persecute a religion that was already accepted by Roman law. And because they were the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, they should have been legally accepted. In fact, the book of Acts, if it is nothing else, is a legal amicus brief to tell the Roman world the Christian faith has a right to exist in the Roman world. So sometimes you and I suffer like Christ unjustly. We make a vigorous, vigorous case for the legality of our faith. But at the end of the day, if we're persecuted anyway, so be it. We belong to Christ. We don't belong to them. Just as chapter chapter 2, verses 12 through 25 tell us that like Christ, Christ is our example. He's our exemplar. We are to keep our conduct honorable among unbelievers and to do so by submitting to unjust human authorities at times when authority becomes unjust. And those who represent themselves where, where, good, where good people are at times experience maltreatment. So here in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ is our example. But Christ's example changes right here. Because here's how it changes. He tells us that submission and subjection, being submissive to authority, is not the final story. It's not the final story. It's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the glorification of the believer with Christ. So those whom he called, he did what? He justified. Those whom he justified, what? He sanctified. And those whom he sanctified, he did what? He glorified. So from God's point of view, God, the end of the story is God is going to raise us in glory with Christ and vindicate our belief in this risen, exalted Lord. So now he enlightens us to the scope of Christ's victory and gives us two analogies. So today we're going to look at the scope. Next week we're going to look at the analogies, okay? So we're going to look at this part today. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons in all, were brought safely through the water. So Christ was put to death with respect to the body. So he says he was put to death in the flesh or in the body. That phrase in Greek, in the body, means in the realm of the body or in the domain of 
bodily life. He was put to death with reference to his body, but then he was enlivened with reference or in the domain of the spirit, the supernatural realm. So this odd passage raises essentially four questions that seem really strange to our modern Western ears. The first one is, who did Christ proclaim the message to? Because it says the spirit's in prison, okay? Yeah, so what's that? What was the message he proclaimed? Was it the gospel or something else? Where did he go to proclaim this message? Because it seems like he went somewhere else, right? Okay, so number four. How does this message relate to Christ's victory for the Christian in present circumstances? So how do we relate this then to the actual context, which is Christ's victory over all circumstances that you and I would face? So we're going to answer those. So what you need to know is there are essentially three historic opinions on what he's talking about in these verses. And option number one is that Christ descended to hell. So after he died, he descended into hell to preach to the spirits of the people who disobeyed in Noah's day. So the idea here is the people who disobeyed and God had to judge the world, God took those people and put their souls in hell and they've been incarcerated there And then when Christ died, he went and proclaimed the gospel to him. Uh, So this first option was made popular by the early church historian or uh, church father, Origen, in the second century. And so the idea is that between Christ's death and his resurrection, Christ preached the gospel to these people and essentially gave them a second chance. Now, I like that idea. What's the strength of that idea? Well, it seems to handle the text in terms of its straightforward reading pretty well. It seems to, uh, the straightforward or at least surface meaning of the passage seems to suggest exactly this interpretation. But what's the downside? Well, it's theological. The New Testament really doesn't talk about people getting a second chance. The few passages that you might be able to get that out of are really obscure. But it usually talks about the afterlife as you and I only having one chance in this life. So usually those passages seem very clear. It is appointed to man to die once, and then after that, the judgment. It doesn't say after that, eh, another try. <laughs> you know, like it doesn't say that. So those passages which speak of the afterlife being sort of final, set, seem very clear. So if Peter is claiming this as Origen taught, Uh, in the second century, then that would seem to contradict other passages in the New Testament that go against that. So I think that's probably the weakness of the view. Option two would be the Spirit of Christ preached through Noah in his own day. This was the view of uh, Augustine in the fourth century. So Augustine in the fourth century noticed that the passage doesn't say that Jesus went to hell or that he preached there after his death. It just says that Jesus preached to the spirits who are now in prison. And so his view... Uh, is that Christ's spirit, through the ministry of Noah in his own day, preached a salvation message through Noah. And these people disobeyed anyway. God put them in hell, and now that's where they are. But the message was preached through the spirit of Christ in Noah's ministry when they were alive. Tracking? Okay, so that would, the upside to that, the positive with that view, is that it would seem to comport well with chapter 1, verse 11, where in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, the Old Testament prophets looked intently into the times and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ within them was pointing. 
So he seems to be teaching the same thing there. In chapter 1, verse 11, the Spirit of Christ in the ministry of the prophets pointed to the Messiah, and they are looking intently at the times and circumstances of that. So it seems to be supported by that passage. The downside is that it doesn't make a lot of sense of the grammar. That option doesn't make a lot of sense of the grammar. When it says he went and preached to the spirits in prison, that doesn't make any sense if he was just present in the ministry of Noah preaching to those people. What does that mean? So it doesn't seem to work very well with that. Option number three is that Christ proclaimed his victory to disobedient supernatural powers after his resurrection. So the phrase in which, or by which, the antecedent to that seems to be Christ's death and resurrection. So unlike Origen, this view does not teach that between Christ's death and his resurrection, he went to hell to preach to these people but it seems to be suggesting that, after, suggesting that after Christ's death and his resurrection, Christ went to these supernatural powers in the afterlife who were chained in hell to proclaim not the gospel, but the victory of the gospel to them. Right? And you need to know that this is the majority view today. This is the view that most pastors and most scholars and most theologians do hold. You need to know that. So, um, that's the view that I hold. It's the third option. Now, I want to tell you this. It's debatable. If you like any of those three options, you help yourself to it. And look, you're not going to be declared anathema if you decide that number one is the best view. They're all within the pale of orthodoxy. You don't become an unchristian or a non-Christian if you hold one view over the other. But I'm going to give you some reasons why I think it's the third view. And then at the end, you'll see that I'm right. Okay. Uh, Reason number one, okay? Well, I think the, this is referring to dark spiritual powers chained, fallen angels chained in hell or in somewhere in, in the afterlife. So first, Peter lived at a time, let me set this up. Peter lived at a time when people took the existence of the supernatural for granted. Now today, we do not live in that time. We don't live in a time where people took the supernatural uh, for, where people take the supernatural for granted. Today we live in a, in a rising secularist, philosophical, naturalist world where people do not believe in the existence of the spiritual realm. And so that is a problem. But in the first century, they most definitely did. They just took these things for granted, that there were such things as angels and demons and departed souls and departed spirits. That's, that was part of their belief system, their belief structure. Now, to be sure, we Christians do affirm that every other system of supernaturalism outside of Christianity, every other belief system of supernaturalism outside of Christianity is pretty much superstitious and worthless. We've got the right version. But I want to tell you, we do hold a supernaturalist worldview. We do. Now, we believe in the natural world, and we're not Christian Gnostics. What I mean by this, the Gnostics in the second century believed that the material world was inherently evil. We don't believe that. We believe Genesis chapter 1. God created the world and said it was good. When he gets done with the whole project after the seventh day, he says, oh, it's very good, actually. It's very good. The world is inherently good because God decrees it so. He made it that way, but it has fallen. It's fallen into sin. It needs redemption in the new heavens and the new earth. It doesn't need to be discarded in favor of some ethereal spiritual condition where we're a bunch of disembodied apparitions floating around in space. That is not what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible teaches that God is going to renovate and resurrect the cosmos and your body too in it. That's what the scripture teaches. So you and I are not Christian Gnostics. We believe in a good world that has fallen that needs redemption, and it will be. But we do, but we do hold to a supernaturalist worldview. We do think there is a spiritual realm beyond this natural world that does exist, and God's throne is there. And angelic powers are there. And the disembodied are there. Those who die in the faith. Secondly, uh, the word spirit here is used as a synonym when referring to the Holy Spirit, angels, demons, but only descriptively of humans. What do I mean by this? The word spirit is the Greek word pneuma. So if you've ever used a pneumatic tool, that it's just an air, air gun or an air tool, air power tool, that word means spirit or it means breath. It means air, right? So in the New Testament, the word spirit is used of God. God is referred to as spirit. Jesus said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said, God is spirit. He doesn't say God is a spirit. He says God is, as to his essential nature, spirit. And uh, the book of Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. And demons are referred to in the gospel as demon spirits, right? But the word pneuma is not used of people in the same way because you and I are material and immaterial. So you and I are most often referred to as souls, body, soul, and spirit, but we're most often referred to as souls. The proof of that is right here in this passage. In this passage, when he refers to the eight people Saved through the ark, through the water, what does he call them? Persons, right? People. The Greek word is the word psuche, where we get the word psychology, right? Okay, or psycho, <laughs> you know. Um, the Greek word is psuche, and it means soul. So most often in the New Testament, when the Bible refers to a human being, the whole of the human being, or the immaterial side of a human being, they're referred to as souls, not spirits. Now, you and I our souls, we have a spirit because we have a spiritual constitution, we have spiritual faculties, and we live in a body. That seems to be what the New Testament is teaching, okay? So here he says, these are spirits chained in this prison. And I don't think because of that he is referring to human beings. I think he's referring to fallen spirits, fallen angels. Thirdly, the story of fallen angels enticing mankind into grievous sin. Sin so grievous that it resulted in a worldwide judgment was very popular in Peter's day. Okay, I want to tell you this. This interpretation of Genesis chapter 6, the reason for the flood, was very popular among Jews in Peter's day. And the result of these fallen spirits' rebellion was so troubling, as the story goes, that they had to be imprisoned in hell before the final day of judgment, or incarcerated apart from the rest of the realm in pre preparation for the final day of judgment. Now, this seems like Peter does believe this. It seems like he does believe this, not only based on this passage, which is more obscure, but there's a clear one that interprets the obscure one. So clear passages Interpret obscure ones. Here's the clear passage. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. It says, For if God didn't spare the angels... Now, who are we talking about? Angels. The Greek word is angelos. It's angels. 
For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell. That word is Tartarus. That, in Greek mythology, that word for hell was this bottom compartment where only the most wicked of the wicked of the wicked were confined. They had to be sequestered even from the other people in other parts of hell. And so he seems to be using this imagery to teach them something that's really true. He said, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, there's Noah again, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now, the context here is if God didn't spare them, he won't spare you either. <laughs> you, you better walk straight. God will judge you as well. God will judge this world as well. That's his context. But notice we have several things going on, several parallels. We have a semantic parallel. Same words are being used between those two passages, 2 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3. We have a contextual parallel. They're talking about angels being confined or some beings being confined in hell and also Noah being saved in that day. So we have a contextual parallel and we have the same person writing both accounts. So I think that is a good interpretive strategy. You interpret the obscure passage by the clear one. And this one's clear. And the other one is a little more, that we read today in 1 Peter 3, is a little more unclear. And also this worldview is, shows up in Jude chapter 6, or Jude 1, 6. Here's what it says. And the angels who did not keep their own position, but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Now, let me ask you a question. How bad do these angels have to be? Remember the story of Job? Remember how that story starts out? Job, if you remember, is uh, living large, doing well, prospering more than any human being on earth. And he's a worshiper of God. He loves God. He worships God. Satan decides he's going to challenge Job's righteousness and his, blameless, his blamelessness. So he presents himself before the council, the divine council. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He comes before the divine council and says, I have a proposition for you. I bet that guy will curse you to your face if things go wrong for him. Just let me do it. And the weird thing about the story is, God says, okay, knock yourself out. But here's the, the, here's the parameter. You are not to touch his life. Can't kill him, right? So God gives him a boundary. Now, to Satan's credit, can't believe I'm saying this, to Satan's credit... He stays within the boundary. He does not kill Job. These, these angels, these fallen angelic beings are so bad that they are said to have tra transgressed the boundary. Whatever boundary God set for them. It says they would not maintain their position. They decided to transgress whatever boundary God gave to them. And on the scale of good and bad, super bad. Right? So... How bad do these fallen angels have to be that they have to be sequestered and chained away that they can't even be unleashed on the earth right now? I think, I think really bad. <laughs> so this seems to be what the Bible is teaching. Fourthly, the paragraph itself reveals that Peter believes in angelic powers in the heavenly realms that are now subjugated to Christ and his rule. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 is actually the end of what we call the pericope. It's the end of the section. It's the end of that paragraph here. Here's what it says. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So that seems that is a summary verse. What, it's a, what is it a summary of? Well, it's a summary of what he was just talking about. So he is talking not about people 
in hell who were given a second chance. He's not talking about Noah preaching, in my view. He's not talking about Noah preaching by the Spirit of Christ in his own day. He is talking about these fallen angels and powers and authorities. And this is exactly the same. These are the kinds of words that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 when he says, for, our, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and authorities, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. So this is the same language right here. Fifthly, just by note, the word prison, which is the Greek word philike, the word philike is not used anywhere in the New Testament as a synonym for hell or Hades. So normally people are said to go to hell. Jesus said this in uh, Matthew chapter 24. If you reject Christ, if you reject his truth, according to Matthew 24, he'll put you in hell. According to Matthew 25, he illustrates that very graphically, and it's super scary. Read those two chapters, okay? So, the scripture teaches this. Um, That's where people go. That's where souls of the departed go who reject Christ and reject the Savior. You'll spend eternity there, and your judgment will be fixed forever if you go there. Which is why you want to turn to Christ today. But this word, philike, for prison, is not used as a synonym for that term when it's referring to people. So, that's interesting, too. So, now, all of this, let's summarize it. Let's summarize in a paragraph because we got to bring it home. That's interesting. That stuff's interesting. There, that stuff is debatable too, but here's what's not debatable. Is that Peter intended to present Jesus as the example of Christian suffering for doing good in the face of unjust persecution, which they were about to face. And though he was persecuted to the death for the truth, he was made alive by resurrection power. And in the spirit by resurrection power by which he went and proclaimed his victory to the most egregious offenders in human history, the wicked spirits who enticed mankind to sin so grievously that it brought a worldwide judgment. And his point is very simply this. This is what's not debatable. The enthroned king at the right hand of God has brought all powers and all authorities into subjection to himself, all spiritual forces in heavenly realms, so that the persecuted faithful do not need to fear. We do not need to be intimidated. We do not need to be afraid by harassment, even if that maltreatment is driven by demonic forces. Christ has won the victory. Do you know that? Do you know what the flags say? Do you know what the rest of the message says? Christ has won the victory. And though right now the banner, the flags through the fog of suffering seems to read, Christ is defeated. Surely. We know what the mist and the haze obscures. That the rest of the message is Christ has defeated sin. He has defeated death. He has defeated hell for you and for me. You can count on that. I hope you're encouraged today because this, this, this passage is weird. But this passage is also incredibly encouraging. It is incredibly uplifting because you and I can walk into the world no matter what the darkness, no matter what darkness comes, knowing that we are in Christ and Christ is risen and he's victorious, amen. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? Father, today we come before you as your subjects in submission to you and your authority. You are the highest authority in the land. And Father, we belong to you. We are in Christ. And God, we thank you this morning that we can gather freely. And we want to pray for our country. We want to lift up our nation, Lord. We know that there are forces of darkness in this country 
that would, if, if they had their way, Lord, we would not be able to meet freely this way. And God, we pray for them. We pray for those people. We pray that you would save them because we don't want them to live out their lives deceived and trapped by sin in a self-made prison of sin and deception. And we also don't want them to spend eternity in hell. And so, God, we lift up our country. We lift up our nation. And we pray for the people in our world right now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be unleashed before you return in glory at the end of this age. God, would you, would you just spark a revival in this land that hearts that are empty, hearts that are darkened, hearts that are deceived, that they would come to faith in you and use us to do it, Lord. We're imperfect vessels, we know. God, we know we're imperfect. We know that we're, we walk with the limp. We're flawed. But God, would you use us? Would you help us to preach this gospel to men? And God, help, help us to relay the message, the good news, the victory is won. And Christ has won it through his resurrection and his death and, and burial. And we thank you for that today. If you're sitting here and you don't know Jesus, now's the time. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Now's the time. Don't you wait another second. Don't you wait another minute. Because you don't have the guarantee of tomorrow. You don't. You don't have it. You might walk out that door and who knows what will happen to you. I don't know. I hope nothing. But you need to turn your heart and your life to Christ right now. Would you do it? Would you surrender all? Surrender your heart. Surrender your mind. Surrender your life. Embrace him as Savior. Because you don't have another Savior. Nothing else is going to save you. Nothing. Would you confess Christ as Savior and Lord? Would you embrace him in your heart this morning? Before you walk out that door. God, we thank you this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.